be with you this morning. I want to do something. Um, I think maybe I'm somewhat inspired by the way that Reed ended our service last week when he had everyone shout um, Hosanna in the highest and everyone did so exuberantly. I want to I want to proclaim together that Christ is risen, okay? And so and if some traditional churches, more traditional churches than ours, do this every Resurrection Easter Sunday. But I'm going to say Christ is risen, and I want you to say loudly, with joy, you know what to say, right? He is risen indeed, okay? Now, there's a couple guys in here. Last week, I, I joked around and said, I didn't hear you when we shouted and they said, oh yeah, you did. So, you know who you are. All right? So, give it all you got, okay? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Happy Easter. One Sunday a year, we call Easter Sunday. Christians gather all across the world and celebrate the bodily resurrection of Christ. This is a historical fact, right? It's something that actually happened in history with massive historical and spiritual implications. The Apostle Paul said, if Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain and we are still in our sins. In other words, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we all are still lost. But Christ has risen from the dead, the tomb is empty, and truly everything has changed because of that. So again, happy Easter. But it's also important to keep in mind that every Lord's Day, Christians are having a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. It's why Christians meet on Sunday instead of Saturday. So although we are certainly happy to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus with millions of Christians on this day, here's the thing we need to keep in mind, okay? If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, then we get to do this next week too. And the week following, and the week following, and every time we gather, we get to celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus. When you look at the New Testament, and particularly the, the book of Acts, which is kind of the narrative part of after J Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and the church was birthed, um, one thing you see is that these followers of Jesus, these men and women who said they believed in Christ and wanted to follow him, they were absolutely convinced that he rose from the dead. They were absolutely certain of it. They staked their lives on it. They would have been absolute fools had Jesus not risen from the dead because they were constant, well, many of them constantly on the run and put to death. The resurrection was their message. The resurrection of Christ was their power source. And it's meant to be a power that we experience as well. Okay, it's not just something we're to read on the pages of Scripture. These believers trusted that Jesus rose from the dead and they lived lives in accordance with that. We too are called to believe and trust that Christ has risen. As Alyssa said earlier, Every knee will bow to Christ, right? Either now as a friend and loyal subject to Christ or in the future as a sworn enemy of Christ forever. 
The Christian life is to be lived according to and in the strength of the resurrection power of Christ. Resurrection power is given to us through Christ to live for his glory and someday in the future to die for his glory. This power, however, is not given to us to make our lives easy. It's not, it's not given to us so that life is a walk in the park. In fact, our lives, in some ways, will become more difficult. When we understand that Christ is risen and this resurrection life is given to us and we can live in light of it, life can be more difficult. First of all, we recognize life is not about us. It's about Christ. It's about him. And sometimes, because our natural tendency is to bend the world in our direction and make life about us, when we realize this, it can be challenging. Not only that, as we follow Christ, we will face more obstacles as we seek to live faithful lives for Jesus in a world that is hostile to Jesus. It's this experience of power in relation to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that will thrust us forward through all of it. And this is what Paul prays for in Ephesians 1. So I want to read our text for this morning. I haven't read it yet, okay? Usually we read a passage and teach through it. It's out of Ephesians chapter 1. It's in your bulletin, and I'd like to read verses um, 15 to 23. Here's what it says. For this reason, this is a prayer that Paul prayed. For this reason, I have heard, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word to us today. This is what Paul prays for in Ephesians 1, in these, in these verses that we would know and experience the resurrection power of Christ. Verses 19 and 20, Paul prays, for the, the people of Ephesus, and 2,000 years later, we can adopt this as a prayer for us that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power at work toward us who believe. This power is to, that, that's, that's toward us is immeasurably great. I don't know if you caught that. It's, there, it's beyond our ability to measure. Um, David and Matthew Bryan have a company called NS Machines where they have these massive machines, steel presses, 
And when, when David explains what these things can do and how many pounds of steel, how many thousands of pounds of steel they can press and bend and twist, it's hard for me to fathom the power of these machines. And yet, they are still measurable. Paul prays for the power at work toward us to be manifest, and it is beyond measure. It is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. It cannot be measured. It surpasses any measurement of greatness. The reason why is because it's not nuclear power. It's not steel press power. It's not the power of positive thinking. It is divine power that's at work toward us. But then what Paul does in this passage is he does give us a way to measure it. Um, He does give us a way to measure this power at work toward us, not by giving us a nice calculation or something like that, but by telling us what this power is like. He says this power is according to or in accordance with something or some things. In other words, Paul is about to tell us what we can liken this power to and what follows is absolutely breathtaking. Paul says this immeasurably great power at work toward us listen, is according to the working of God's great might when he raised Christ from the dead, resurrection, and seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in every age, the age to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power of God at work toward believers is like that. It's amazing. And notice it is a power at work toward believers right now. In other words, it's not pointing us forward to the future, to some event when God will demonstrate his power toward us we can certainly do that and we ought to right we look forward to the time when Christ will come again and everyone who believed in Christ their bodies that are in the grave will be raised out of the graves out of their graves what a sight that will be that is powerful but this is speaking of an ongoing present power at work toward believers, toward Christians. This is something that's to be known and experienced. And it begs the question, why don't we very much then? Or at least not as much as we ought to or as much as we would like. Well, the passage seems to imply that it has something to do with the dimness with which we see spiritual reality. Remember, this is a prayer in which Paul prays that God the Father would open the eyes of the heart. Spiritual eyes. He says, may the eyes of your hearts be enlightened. So here's the deal. We got physical eyes, right? I can see all of you. Some of us see better than others, but we got physical eyes with which we see things in the physical world. And Paul here says we have another set of eyes. The eyes of the heart. 
And he prays that these spiritual eyes would be opened or enlightened and given the ability to see with greater clarity. He prays that the lights would come on, that these spiritual eyes, the eyes of the heart, would be opened to know some truth that we have to know in order for this power that's at work toward us to be known and experienced. He, pray, he prays that these spiritual eyes would be open to know the immeasurable greatness of his power at work toward us who believe. And so right here I want to pause, okay? I want to give you something else to do. I'm not going to ask you to shout again. Um, but I do want you to pray for yourself and for those around you and for me and for this entire church this prayer. Lord, open my eyes to see this truth. May this be our constant prayer this morning. You guys remember that story in the Gospels where Jesus meets this blind man? And um, I think it's blind Bartimaeus. If I remember. There's a couple of these stories, but I think it's blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus and the disciples want him to leave Jesus alone. And Jesus says, let him come over. I want to talk to him. And Jesus asks him a question. Remember what he asks him? What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus said, Lord, I want to see with my eyes. Tell the Lord you want to see with your spiritual eyes this morning. What follows is Paul showing us or revealing to us what this power is like. I read it earlier, but we're going to spend some time unpacking it. This is what we need to see today with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of our hearts. So in verses 20 to 23, it says that the power of God toward us is like certain things. We're going to just take some time to look at it. The first thing Paul says, the power of God toward us is like, he said it's, it's like God raising Jesus from the dead. God's power at work toward believers is mighty and strong like the power that was exerted by God when he raised Christ from the dead. Verses 19 and 20. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power at work toward us according to the working of his great might when, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? The Father raised Jesus from the dead. This is not the language of allegory, okay? This is not the language of um, hyper-spiritual, spiritual things. This is the language of historical fact. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Father raised Christ from the dead having broken the power of sin and having broken the power of death. And Christ was not merely resuscitated only to die again. You know what the difference is, right? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You guys know that story in John 11? Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. He'd been there four days. But guess what happened to Lazarus at some time in the future again? He died. He died again. Jesus was raised never to die again. He was given a body that was incorruptible. He has that body that's incorruptible. His body that he has now can never, will never die. He was dead, but behold, 
he is alive forevermore. And Jesus in Revelation 1 says he now has the keys of death and the grave. Jesus has the keys of death and the grave. The devil does not have the keys of death and the grave. Christ does. Jesus has the master set of keys because he rose from the dead. We sing the song in Christ alone that has these words. It says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Isn't that wonderful news that the devil does not command our destiny, the world doesn't, our president doesn't, or anybody else, and thankfully, we don't. I'm not the captain of my own ship, and I praise God that I'm not, because I would sink it. Jesus commands our destiny. Christ has been raised from the dead never to die again. And here's the thing. For those who belong to Christ, for those who believe in Jesus, we, if that's you, we can say, I too have been raised from the dead. I have been raised with Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You and I were once dead in our sins, dead, dead, dead in our sins, not kind of dead, totally dead in our sins, but God in his great love and mercy, when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. And that is the essence of what it means to be saved by grace. You were once totally dead, okay? Can I put any other superlative adjective? Totally dead, completely dead. And when you were dead, God raised you. You didn't help him. Dead people don't help others raise them to life. We have been raised with Christ not just so that we get to go to heaven someday or experience the resurrection of our bodies in the future. We will experience those things and praise God for it. You do have, if you belong to Christ, if you believe in him, you do have that hope in the future. But we've been raised with Christ so that we can live new life now. Romans 6, verses 10 and 11 says this, For the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he now lives, he lives to God. And then it says, Therefore, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this speaks of what this resurrection, the spiritual resurrection that believers have experienced, this, this expresses what that means. We were once dead in our sins, totally dead to God, and we've been raised to newness of life where now we are alive to God. We understand that he's our father and we love him and we know that he loves us. 
We have died to sin through Christ and we have been raised to a new life in and through Christ. And because of that, we are now summoned to live in this newness of life in all of life through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. So the power of God at work towards you is like the power that the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So may God open our eyes to see this. But as we continue in this passage, it says the power of God toward us is like God's power in seating Christ at his right hand. Verse 20, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. After Jesus was raised from the dead, it says that the Father took him and seated him at his right hand. This speaks of the exaltation, the ascension of Christ, where now he's seated in a place of majesty and honor and glory. Jesus prayed for this in John 17. He said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Father answered that prayer because Christ is now with him, glorified in a place of honor at the Father's right hand. Now, when we think of Jesus being exalted, ascending to the Father's right hand, I think it makes more sense or helps us to understand the magnitude of this when we think about and understand the humility of Christ when he came to earth. We know that Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, he is eternally God, he humbled himself. The language of Philippians 2 is striking, and I don't want to blunt it at all. It says that he took the form of a servant, but literally it means he took the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sins. In, in our Saturday morning men's group, we're going through John 13 to 17. And uh, we talked about this last week. We looked at this passage at the beginning of John 13 where Jesus, he, he gathers his disciples and he's hosting a dinner for them and he leaves uh, his seat and goes and begins to wash his disciples' feet. That's humility and it's a picture of Christ coming and washing us through his sacrifice on the cross. God in the flesh getting down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet and because of that, because of his humility, the point of dying to the point of dying a criminal's death on the cross. Philippians 2 goes on to say that after Jesus died on the cross, God highly exalted him. And Alyssa shared this passage earlier. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ has been exalted to the Father's right hand and there he is totally secure. Now get this, okay? 
This is stunning. The New Testament says that those who believe in Christ are seated with him in heavenly places. It's hard to fathom that. I don't think this means we're to travel back and forth to heaven. I don't think that's what it means at all. I think what Paul is trying to say, I think what the New Testament is trying to say when it communicates like this is primarily, maybe not exclusively, but primarily it speaks of our position and eternal status with Jesus. It's meant to be a truth that we're to have our eyes open to in order to give us the absolute assurance of our eternal security. If we belong to Christ now, nothing can change that. Ephesians 2.6, it says that having been raised with Christ and seated with Christ in heavenly places, it says that God did this so that in the coming ages, just think eternally, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. I think what is being said in this passage is God raised us with Christ so that forever we might experience and know his kindness and riches and grace and goodness. Colossians 3 uses the language of our lives being hidden with Christ, and Christ is at the Father's right hand. The power that raised Jesus from the grave and seated him in the presence of the Father at his very right hand, listen, it put you there and keeps you there totally secure forever. That is power at work toward believers. As we continue on in this passage, it says that the power of God toward us is like God triumphing over all demonic powers through Christ. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. The power of God at work toward us is like the cosmic shaping power of God when he exalted Christ far above every rule and power and authority. Now more can be said because Jesus, he's exalted to the, to the Father's right hand. He has power and authority over every earthly power as well. But what I want to draw out this morning is the glorious truth that Jesus is now exalted in victory over all evil demonic powers. The earliest mention of the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you guys know where it's at in the Bible? The very earliest mention of the gospel. It's way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned, right? And God came and pronounced curse upon them and, every, and so forth, but he turned his attention to the serpent who had deceived, deceived Eve and tempted her to eat the fruit, and he said, a seed from this woman is going to come who is going to crush your head, even though his heel will be bruised in the process. Ephesians 6 uses the language of rulers, authorities, when speaking about spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And of course, this is talking about satanic power 
our Lord Jesus Christ, has not only been raised from the dead, but also has been raised far above all demonic, evil, and satanic power. Christ has triumphed over Satan. He has crushed the head of the serpent. Now, you might look around and say, wait a second. It seems like the devil still has a lot of power. He's still a liar and deceiver and murderer. And of course, all of that is true. But note, remember what this power we're talking about. Remember who it's toward. It's toward those who believe. This power is for those of us who believe. And the power that's toward us who believe means that we ultimately have victory over Satan and demonic powers as well. The devil certainly has some power, but it's like the power of a lion who can roar really loud and scare the heck out of you, but has no teeth. This, of course, doesn't mean that he can't harm us in any way, but it most emphatically means that he cannot harm us in the ultimate way. That ability has been removed from him. Colossians 2 says that God forgave all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ or in the cross. One of the ways the devil seeks to harm us now is as an accuser. Accusation. He accuses us. In fact, Revelation says he accuses believers, Christians, day and night before the throne of God. But notice what God accomplished through Christ. It says that he canceled the record of debt. What's that? That's the debt of our sin. He canceled it. He also canceled the legal demands because of our sin. In other words, we've sinned against God and his law. And God, if he is just and a good judge, we deserve punishment from him. But God canceled that, not by sweeping it under the rug, but by nailing it to the cross. And therefore, the devil's accusations against us can't stick. Not because there isn't some truth in it. When the devil comes and says, you've sinned, often that's true, right? Because we still sin. But the reality is that Christ died for us and he rose again. And now he's at the Father's right hand and he intercedes for us. And so who's gonna bring a charge against God's people? Like a victorious general parading his defeated enemy around the city, Christ has done so to the devil. So this power enables us to withstand the accusations. Listen, for, for genuine Christians, the devil's accusations, if we don't understand this, it can cripple us. It can absolutely cripple us. But this power enables us to withstand his accusations and to resist the devil. Finally, 
The power of God toward us is like Christ, not only being raised from the dead, but also being exalted with unrivaled authority for our good. Verse 22 and 23, it says, God put all things under Christ's feet, and God gave Jesus Christ as head over all things to the church. To the church. You see the word, maybe see or hear the word feet there. God put all things under Christ's feet. You hear the word head there. God gave Christ as head. The word head here alludes to kind of an active reigning. Jesus is not just a figurehead like, um, well, like the Queen of England, right? She doesn't have any, or not much, real authority. Jesus Christ is actual head. He's actively reigning as head. And notice that Jesus is head over all things. He has the unrivaled authority and wisdom to rule with active authority and power. He is head over all human history. Jesus Christ is head over all nations and kings and queens and judges and presidents and prime ministers and congresses and parliaments and every thug tyrant. Christ is head over them all. Jesus Christ is head over the CDC and the WHO. He's head over all elections and the outcomes of elections. He is head over every military leader. He's head over every war. Jesus Christ is head over all things. He's head over all nature, climate change, weather patterns. He's head over every single individual. He is head over social media controversies. He's head over it all. Jesus, upon his resurrection, he gathered his disciples to himself, and we call it the Great Commission. Do you remember how he started the Great Commission? He didn't start with go make disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But notice how verse 22 speaks of this power at work toward us. It says that Christ rules and reigns with absolute sovereignty and unrivaled wisdom on behalf of the church. Or God gave him as head over all things to the church. He was given as head to the church. That's to us, to believers. In other words, Christ uses his authority and his wisdom over all things to serve us for our good. Of course, we can say it's to serve the Father and to glorify the Father, but here what's being drawn out is that he does this for the good of his church, for the good of his people. He does this to serve us as our captain and leader and shepherd and savior and redeemer and friend. This is a stunning power at work toward us. Jesus ultimately commands our destiny. Now many people, even many people who go to church every week, Jesus is kind of a side issue. 
right? Go to church because it's, the, because it's kind of a religious thing to do. I remember talking to someone recently who said, well, when we got married, my wife and I, we had kids. We thought, well, we better take them to church. We, we want our kids to be raised in the church. But there was no real sense of allegiance to Christ. But if this is true about Jesus, then there must be total allegiance to Christ, right? This is meant to free and empower us to live for Jesus, right? To move all the chips in the middle of the table and to go all in with Christ. Christ has risen from the dead. God raised him. God seated Christ at his right hand. God triumphed over Satan, demonic powers, and over all earthly powers. And Christ rules with absolute sovereignty and all of this mighty power is at work toward believers. Which means that if you are a believer, you've been raised with Christ, you've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, you have ultimate victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he reigns and rules all things for your ultimate good. This is the power of God at work toward you believers, which just begs the question. There's two questions I want to ask in conclusion today. Do you believe? And I don't mean, did you at one time believe? Right? This immeasurably great power is toward us who believe. So do you believe? Now let's face it, all of us can say, like the father of that sick child who told Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? We, don't, we, we wouldn't say we have perfect faith, but do you believe? Have you turned away from your sin? Have you trusted in Christ? Do you believe that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death? And therefore, you're no longer under the dominion of sin and death. Do you believe this? Do you believe you are as eternally secure as Christ himself is because your life is hidden with Christ? Do you believe that the powers of Satan have been overcome through Jesus? So you can fight the tempter, the father of lies, taking up the sword of the the spirit and have at least in measure victory over him. There was this uh, early church father named Justin Martyr. And uh, he, was ta- he said this to uh, persecutors who were, who were wanting to kill him. But I think this holds true with us and the devil because the devil can harm us, right? He can kill people. He can murder people. He's called the murderer. But Ju- Justin Martyr had this great line to these persecutors. He said, you can kill me, but you cannot harm me. He understood that his life was secure in Jesus and he was going to live forever with Christ. Do you believe that Christ sits as head over all things with unrivaled authority and rules for your good? That's the question. The power of of God at work toward us is the power of God at work toward believers. The second question is this. Do you pray 
for your eyes to be opened to this reality. The Holy Spirit, of course, is the one who opens the eyes. He lives inside of Christians. But may God the Father open our eyes. Paul prays this prayer for Christians. So as Christians, we ought to pray this prayer. Father, open my eyes to see this amazing spiritual truth. May the Spirit reveal this afresh. Now, this might sound kind of grandiose, so think of this more in a micro sense, more on a local level. But the world is waiting to see a demonstration of the power of God through men and women and children who believe Christ has been raised from the dead. The world is waiting to see what it looks like for Christians to take that seriously. Not just be nice boys and girls who wouldn't harm a fly. That's not what we're called to be. We're called to be followers of Christ, the one who conquered the grave. And so, one of our constant prayers ought to be, open the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the immeasurable greatness of your power at work toward us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for being here with us by your spirit. And I pray that this would, well, I pray this prayer. Father, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, of our understanding, that we would know the surpassing greatness of your power at work toward us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing one more song and then...